And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! I'm going to start doing some kind of thing. I, I should fade in when you fade out, but but uh, it's just us this week. It is indeed. So, welcome back to the podcast, Jonathan. <laughs> It's always good to be here, Gary. Hey, look, we've had 245 of them, and neither of, you, neither of us have been on all of them. So, you know, it's always good to have a moment. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm uh, getting ready for my fall semester to begin, and I'm getting ready in a couple of days to leave to Spokane for what... Uh, my prediction is it's going to be a less interesting Worldcon than most people expect. My guess that most of the Worldcon is going to be a fairly normal Worldcon. The people doing costuming and filking and so forth will have a good time. And, so, and, and the Hugo Awards will get interesting. No doubt about that. Oh, but yeah. I don't think it's going to be gunfire. in the. In the oh, Lord, panel. no. I, I don't expect anything more. And Probably we won't talk much, mention much more about it other than to say, look, I, I actually feel a slight pang about not being in Spokane this year. Um, I'd never planned to go. It began to look more interesting over time. I kind of feel like it's a a gathering of the clan that I wouldn't mind being there for. But you know that's how these things go, and there's always there are always other events. Though I am now having had correspondence with a friend, and this ties in something you want to talk about. But having correspondence with a friend, I am not ruling out going to Kansas City next year. Really? Yeah. Kansas City strikes me, and even though I grew up in Missouri and I know Kansas City well, and I have friends who are helping put it on because they're at the University of Kansas. That strikes me as an uninteresting convention in, well, in, in extreme. Okay. Well, you see, okay, you say that, right? But, and I understand why to some degree. It's because you look at the idea of going to Kansas City. You've never, you, you know, you've either been to Kansas City or you have a view of the city. But set that aside for a minute and figure that it's simply the next large North American Worldcon. And it's the gathering of a particular part of the tribe, as they would say. I know that uh, friends of ours professionally, like Rich Horton and other Locust reviewers, Adrian Martini and whatever else, are planning to be there, just as they will be in Spokane. So it's a chance to well, meet people who don't go to World Fantasy. Absolutely, and that's the case with Spokane, and I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of friends. This is always what I look forward to at Worldcon. It's among four or five panels, and... Uh, uh, and, and Apart from that, I'll just be hanging out with people. Some of the friends I'm hanging out with aren't even registered. Yeah. Uh, so that's the same thing's true with Kansas City, and Kansas City does have an advantage. And when we talk about uh, something that you and I have both publicly supported, Helsinki in 2017, uh, the disadvantage of a Helsinki convention or a London convention or a Dublin convention is that it is difficult for many American fans to get there. The advantage of Kansas City is that I, I used to know this, but it's probably within an eight within an eight hour drive of almost half the population of the United States. Well, yeah. that's not quite true. Within a within a seventeen hour drive. Of. Sure. Now, as so you know, I uh, as you know, I have no sympathy whatsoever for North Americans who struggle to get to Worldcons, Gary. Well, that's because you live on Mars. I may well live on Mars, but I still travel from Mars. I go, you know, if I can go to the effort. You live in the only remote outpost of Mars. If there's like, I mean, 
it's if we were talking to Ian McDonald again, you'd be at that little outpost which is like halfway across the moon from the main or main lunar colony. I mean, not only in Australia, you're in Perth. That is true, Gary. Yes. And that's why I can look you in the eye and say, if I can travel to Reno, Nevada, and, you know, uh, Saratoga Springs, New York, it ain't such a big deal for anybody to go to Finland for what's going to be a pretty darn remarkable convention, if I have any, if, if I have any sort of feeling for things at all. I have absolutely complete agreement with the idea that that the Helsinki Worldcon would be wonderful. I am very impressed by the way Finland's organized. My only point is that there has been uh, historically, uh, going back to the beginning of Worldcons, a significant segment of American readers, and I realize there are equally significant segments in Australia, in England, in India, who knows, who for whom going to an international Worldcon is two or three years of saving up funds. To yeah, well, I mean, Helsinki's worth it. As is Dublin if it wins, uh, but but also I'd have to say, hey, you guys get Nesvik as a um, compensation, right? I suppose that's true, and I've never been to a Nesvik, so I don't know how it works. Uh, but but I think there 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 is uh, there is that there is the idea that Nesvik is Worldcon for people who can't afford to go to Worldcon that year. Uh, our support of Helsinki is unwavering. We will find out about that this coming weekend. Our uh, support of Dublin is unwavering, and we won't find out about that Absolutely. for another year or two. Uh, Kansas City is a possibility. I will certainly be, as you will be, in uh, Saratoga Springs this year. I have not made a decision definitively about Columbus, Ohio next year, so we'll see, but probably. As for uh, the others, it's... The discussion, we're talking about uh, Kansas City, which strikes me as being a very middle American world con. Uh, in a way, Spokane is, but Kansas City is right in the middle of everything. It's 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 Heinleinville, so it's it's a classic American world. It is. It's, it's talking mid- about world. Yeah, mm-hmm. talking about world what? Talking about world reminds me of the issue I wanted to bring up tonight, which was one that's been on my mind since we had uh, our podcast with Renee and, and Nina Allen, um, which dealt with a very significant issue of of. A lack of access, lack of entry points for women readers to science fiction. Uh, at the end of which Renee mentioned she hadn't been to a Worldcon. And then I thought, okay, what does being a fan mean? Because if you have fans telling you that you need to read certain things in order to be a fan, where are they coming from on that? Uh, I've heard proposals about Worldcons because of the voting problems uh, that maybe you should have evidence that you've been at previous world cons. In other words, the concern if you have non-fans voting on major awards. Uh, it's been a concern that's come up with the Locus Awards in the past, so it's not new with world cons. Um, so what does it mean to be a fan? Should you have credentials as a fan? Are there credentials as a fan? Or does it mean anything at all? I think it does mean something. I think it means something very specific to different people. I think at its simplest and its most facile and least meaningful, it's simply you like science fiction and fantasy in one of its many, many and varied incarnations. And I think that's the level at which most conventions do and need to operate, that they welcome fans of all particular stripes of science fiction and fantasy. However, you know, there is a long-held historical view of science fiction fans. Propeller Beanie fandom, for want of a better sort of shorthand for it, 
you know, the, the chaps who, who grew up together in the, in the 30s and 40s and were replaced in the 50s and 60s, who went to small fan club group meetings, who attempted to live within fandom to some degree, who wrote fanzines, fan letters to one another, they talked about science fiction and about the politics of fandom itself, and were completely engrossed in it. And, and you and I... And shacks and things. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you and I could name good people we, we know who are not just fans, but who seem to live within that world very much, or at least we're aware of them in, in, in that, wor- you know, that world. Like Laura and Jim Mann, for example. Like you know, Cheryl Morgan. Like, uh, you know, any one of a bunch of people. I, I mean, I would, oh, yeah. I would label Cheryl a fan, and I don't mean it in any way offensively, Cheryl, if you're listening. Because I think she's had a long history in that vein. Charles was a fan. And she knows her world. Yeah. You know, Charles Brown was a fan. Um, you were saying, as an example earlier, that George Martin was a fan. Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, part of what made me think about this was um, a panel that I was on at this uh, Archipelagon in, in Olan, Finland, and it was, uh, it was it was George Martin and, and Paris McBride, wife, uh, who's a very active fan and has been for a long time, as is George. And the, the purpose of this panel was to more or less explain American fandom to the Europeans who were a good chunk of the audience. Um, and and it, it occurred to me that they had long histories going back to their teen years of being deeply involved in fandom. And, and I did. I mean, uh, I was more or less in the category of a number of writers I've met who would, would write some well-received uh, science fiction novel and not even realize that fandom exists until they got invited to a convention as a professional writer. Uh, and, and, and so that made me think, okay, is, fan- is fandom a social construct or is it simply, which I tend to think it is, if somebody says they're a fan, they're a fan. There's no test for it. There's no mark- marker for it. You don't have to engage in X number of fan acts. Uh, you don't even have to know because I was I was sitting on this panel thinking, okay, I I can't remember the words to a single filk song. I've never worn a costume, at least not intentionally, um, at, at a conference. I've never uh, organized a, a fan convention, although I've been on sort of committees for them. I thought, by the definition of fan activity, I can't claim to be a fan. I think it might be a degree of a degree and type of immersion in fandom is, is the issue that you're talking about. Because, you know, if you read a lot of science fiction, you're a fan of science fiction. If you read a lot of fantasy, you're a fan of fantasy. I mean, I think it's that simple. So, I mean, on that level, you know, if you love it, yeah. yeah, you're a fan of it. Now, whether you're a fan in the fanish sense, whether you're immersed in fandom, I don't know. I mean, I used to make a distinction which I used to think was useful. I'm not sure it is anymore, but I used to say you'd get fans of fandom. Fans of science fiction, fans of fandom. And I, you know, I mean, I experienced some of that at one point in my life, you know, very much. And that was where, you know, you socialized with people who self-identified as fans. You would have science fiction themed parties, events, small conventions. You would go out and you would go to movie screenings, whatever else it might have been. And it was all very much Mm -hmm. fanish. Now, as you say, for the vast number of science fiction readers, they don't identify as science fiction fans. Uh, hell, I, I think the vast majority of science fiction readers don't identify, self-identify as science fiction readers. Probably true. Uh, but there is this construct. Yeah. 
Well, there is. A, you know, I guess that's what I'm getting at. Is the construct is what um, creates normally creates a sense of camaraderie, a sense of belonging, a, a sense of kind of a social organization, and the, the usual cliches about geeks and nerds finding their tribe and so forth. Although it's worth remembering, especially in this year, that the very few Hugo Award ceremonies was was broken apart by a schism between the Michel, Michelians and the people who have become Futurians and the Donald Williams. So this kind of Spanish infighting goes back to the beginning of fandom. It's, of course it does. In fact, it, it, it's the nature of any passion, isn't it? You know, it's just sort of, I'm passionate about it, you're imp- passionate about it, and to some degree, yes, we're all in this together, and we're particularly against everybody else out there who's against us, but we also have things that we will go to the mat on and have crazy political and philosophical schisms over, and it will be terrible. And we'll have the new wave versus the Cambellians. And you'll, I don't know, there's probably schisms I'm utterly unaware of about how you run a convention and about how you define yourself as a fan and a thousand other things. And that's the nature of people when you put them together. It is, but when you mention being a fan of fandom... It reminds me of something I used to do that uh, when Charles made me, when I, I first started going to Worldcons, which wasn't, I think maybe I'd been to one Worldcon ever before I was writing for Locus, and then Charles made me go to a bunch of them, and made me write reports on them. And I didn't I had no idea how to write reports, because I didn't go to most of the sessions. So I went through the program, and I added up, what are the topics being covered in these programs? I just made my own division. This was back in the uh, late 90s, I'm going to say around, turn the millennium because I haven't written a World Con report in quite a while. And what I found was that if you started dividing up the programming items at a Worldcon, and the same thing happened locally when I did this at WindyCon here in Chicago, you'd find a lot of program items uh, that you put together costuming, filking, fan organization, how to organize and run a convention, how to put it together a bit. All the constellation of panels about fandom outweighed the constellation of panels about fiction and literature. And in fact, so did the gaming and media yeah. panels. I haven't looked at the program at, uh, at Spokane, but the point is that a lot of people go to Worldcons to be fans of fandom. As of course you they do. I mean, it, I mean it's, it's not a, a, a facile thing or, or a you know, pointless thing when, you, when it's referred to as a gathering of the tribes. In fact, generally... People like the people I spend time with at a convention, at Worldcon, are atypical of the average attendee. I mean, the people I spend mm-hmm. t- tend time spend with s- seriously talk about science fiction, uh, are engaged in things with the business of publishing or whatever else. Uh, but the core of the convention, the real heart of it is, I wanted to, you know, are people who are going along to get involved with all the fun activities, to see their friends, to hang out, yeah. to go to room parties, all that kind of stuff. And I've totally done that at conventions at various times in my life. I just don't do it much anymore. Um, I've done it as well, but I mean, by and large, the uh, the, the sense I get from some of these subgroups uh, is that the, the this gets almost divorced from reading. I mean, there there, there are people oh, yeah. who want to hang out in rooms because they uh, they want to talk about I don't know they want to talk about Ted Chang stories or Ursula Le Guin or something, and there are people who hang out in rooms because. They know each other from many, many conventions, and uh, they're just talking about the culture they've developed, which is, by the way, one of the reasons I hear every year at the end of a, of a Worldcon, even a very good one like the one in London, 
that there are a number of people who felt completely at sea. They felt people were talking about things they didn't know about. They didn't feel like they were part of any group at all. Uh, and it raises the question of how you get into the community. And by this community, I guess we're talking about what used to be divided in the pro and fan community, and maybe there's the academic community off to the side. Um, but how did you get into it? How did I get into it? Uh, what what makes you uh, somebody who you know becomes somebody who gets invited to be on panels? Let's put it that way. Okay. Well, it's, there are separate, many separate questions. I mean, for myself, yes, there are. My entry yes, to fandom went, and an, an actual fandom fandom went like this. I started reading science fiction at the age of seven. Uh, knew almost nobody else who read science fiction other than my brother through till I was 18 or 19. I don't think I had even thought about the idea of science fiction as a genre or something to think about beyond it was just everything that I read. Yeah. Uh, and then the year I turned 21, um, Larry Niven published a book that changed my life. Oh, really? It changed my life. Nothing to do with the book itself, but it is an object changed my life. Uh, the Integral Trees was due to come out, and I stumbled across a publication that had an advertisement for it on the back of it. And I thought, I want to read a new Larry Niven book. That's fantastic. How do I find it? And I pulled out the phone book, and I looked through the entire phone book listing. And I found listed in there a bookstore that called itself a science fiction and fantasy bookstore. As it really? turned out, it had only just opened about two months before, the first one ever in West Australia. And I went down there uh, just after Christmas of 1984. And on that day, I f first of all, like I walked in, I met people who I still know today. I picked up a, you know, that day a new John Varley and a new Robert Heinlein book, which meant that I was absolutely beyond all, you know, sort of sane happiness because it was like, this is incredible. How could this possibly be that there are all these books I've never heard of? And then I was going to this place where I would find books I've never heard of, see cover art, all kinds of things. And then you're talking to people. I, I had a four year long conversation with someone about cover art and nothing else. You know, we would pour through this bookstore, pulling down books and arguing about cover art and why it worked and why it didn't. And I met other friends of mine who are friends to this day. And I got caught up in groups who, yes, put on microcons and nanocons and parties and room parties and all that kind of stuff because it was a social life. That's what it is. It's a social life. You get to meet people with similar interests and you share the other ones too. I mean, you're, you're talking about how, you know, you, you go along and you meet fans of fandom and they're not necessarily talking about, you know, Ted Chang or whatever else. They're talking about something else. Yeah, they're talking about the upcoming election and their love of animation and uh, making models and whiskey and a thousand other things. Because that's what people do. It's a social life where you have a core common interest. Or at least it begins with a core common yeah. interest. Yeah. But, but you've also described something which I've seen happening more and more at world cons and large regional cons. The... Uh, the anime fans, the manga fans, the costuming fans, the the, 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 the media fans, the Doctor Who subcategory. Uh, there are so many fandoms within this larger thing called fandom that the uh, the, the, the phrase itself uh, is, is almost losing meaning. Oh, I don't agree with that at all, Gary. 
I think that's a real. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a very bibliocentric view of fandom that you're espousing. No, I'm not saying it's bibliocentric. I'm simply saying there are so many sub fandoms. Is there such a thing as a larger fandom at all? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. You know, um, I think probably. I think there probably is. I mean, I think it's harder to find it, and, and, and harder. The problem is, it's the sheer volume of people you start bringing together when you have all these fandoms in place, because you start talking about, well, where do you bring in um, everybody who goes to Comic Con, that kind of stuff, which is a broader cultural uh, you know, sort of thing, and who're take, perhaps taking a shallower dive through science fiction than your typical fan does, because that's where they go and they fall in love with it. Though that's a particular characterization, but I mean. I, I guess there's a challenge where you're trying to make fandom now a a broader church that that can encompass all this stuff because it's all a kind of science fiction. Now I realize sometimes that doesn't cross over, and people who want to talk about anime still only want to talk about anime, which is fair enough. Yeah. And people who want to talk yeah, about I, I, comics and only want to talk about that. Uh, there, there, and, and there's there's some degree of overlap, but I think there is this sense of. Of, of um, community is too much of a, a, a cliche. A, a sense of being in a safe spot. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I guess this is one of the reasons that a lot of issues, uh, and a lot of issues that come up, especially with um, with, with, with with new attendees at world cons, and uh, unfortunately with women attendees at world cons. That when I started going to conventions, there was a sense of it's being a safe space, intellectually a safe space, by which I mean that if I wanted to read, if, if, if I had a taste for certain kinds of books or movies or comic books, that people would at least be sympathetic with that. You're not going to be ridiculed for your taste. Um, and that was, I think, part of the attraction of all oh, these sub Barry, that's mythology. What do you that, mean? That's myth- you made no. For for the day and hour encountered fandom, there was somebody who was willing to mock somebody else for what they liked. Uh, I didn't have that experience. The experience I had was meeting people, and uh, partly because I didn't meet a lot of people who. Uh, I mean, maybe I started fandom earlier than this because I was the first fan convention I think I ever went to was probably a Star Trek convention because a student of mine had organized. Uh, and the sense then was that you may have your squabbles within, but, but here are people who have all been told at some point in their lives, by their families, by their teachers, by friends, you shouldn't like that stuff. You shouldn't be reading that stuff. You shouldn't be watching that, that garbage. You shouldn't be reading comic books at your age. All these people find that... I'm not talking about the interpersonal problems, which are very real in fandom and always have been, um, but simply the intellectual attitude that this is a group of people who, by and large, are not going to, as a group, gang up on you and beat you up in the schoolyard the way it happened back in your fifth grade class. I don't think it's quite like that, though I think some people have had that experience. I'm absolutely mm-hmm. sure some people have had that experience. I didn't have quite that experience. I was always aware of some degree of derision for liking particular kinds of things. Always. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, fandom, as much as it is cohesive, is also divisive. I mean, which sounds contradictory and is. It's cohesive in the, when it's looking out at the, you know, looking from, look, but when you stand within fandom, look out at the world, you're all sort of, you have your backs to one another and are facing off against the rest of the world. When, mm-hmm. you, exactly. when, you, when you sort of go indoors and it's just you, then you all turn on each other. 
I mean, not, not viciously, but I mean, to some degree, it's like, oh, you really like that? I can't believe you like this. Didn't you like this? Wasn't this the best thing? No, that was the best thing. And some of ah. it, a lot of it is all very, um, has a real sort of you know, collegial, friendly tone, but some of it doesn't. Um, I, 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 it took me a long time to run into the, to that negative part of fandom. And again, we're talking about, you know, literary, cinematic taste and so forth. So there are very bad behaved fans in all kinds of ways. Uh, but I, I always thought that part of what went on with, um, with fandom is that it, it, is, it is a group of warring dookies, if you will. But it reminds me of this. It reminds me there, there, there was a kind of sub-theme in science fiction novels from the 50s and 60s of some, um, some perceived threat from outside the Earth. In other words, the aliens are invading us. And this causes the world to come together and form a unified government. We, we overlook all our differences between communists and, and fascists and so forth and so on. Um, I, the only title that's coming to mind is a now-forgotten novel by somebody named Agnew S. Bonson. Oh, goodness. Called <laughs> you know about that? No, I've never heard of it. Okay. It's, it's, it was a bantam paperback. It was published. But the point is, there's an alien threat, and, and all the United States... Uh, and, and, and Soviet and Chinese and European and South American and African governments get together and form a world government to defend against this threat. And the threat at the end of the novel. Spoiler alert for those of you who are going to try to look up this novel, which you will never find. It turns out there never was an alien threat. It was just a <laughs> group of scientists putting together this this hoax in order to create a union of worlds and a union a, a united. You know, world government for the for, for for the earth, and I think that's what happens if science fiction is attacked historically uh, from from the outside. If there's another one of those articles appearing in the Atlantic or in Harper's or in the New York uh, Times Book Review about how awful science fiction is, then the tribes gather together, and then the differences the people who really like Philip K. Dick suddenly get along with the people who really like Heinlein and uh, and and I don't know, Eric Flint. Everybody's yeah. on the same page because, you know, we as a group are being attacked. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. Once you get into the space uh, of a science fiction convention, you can have all these internecine uh, wars, but, but that's what I mean about it being a safe space. This is a place where, by and large, yeah, I guess. no one is going to come up at a regional science fiction convention and saying, you're a complete loser and geek and hopelessly, uh, you know, un... Uh, incapable of, of socialization and that's why you're here. The attacks you'll get will be attacks over things that you actually tend to care about a little bit. Yes, they will. I think that's true. Um, I mean, I have to say I haven't spent most of, I've not spent, I did not spend most of my time in fandom arguing with people. That, that was not my experience of it, even though I was aware of it. Most of my experience of fandom was collegial. And, you know, I mean, you asked the question earlier, I mean, how do you then make that journey on to being someone who ends up on panels well the, the core of active fandom of you know, convention attending fandom is you just volunteer and you volunteer at small conventions and you get a bit of experience doing it that's really all, all that's ever all it ever was where I was you know you turned around and said hey right. I could I could do you know, I mean there's always someone doing a damn panel on Doctor Who somewhere and someone yeah. doing a panel on Heinlein or two panels on Heinlein and there'd be something else. And, you, and someone would say, well, yeah, we need five people on the panel and there's only 140 people at the convention. 
come sit on the panel and talk about Heinlein. And you so got you're suggesting. Uh, I'm just getting into the socialization aspect. You're suggesting that smaller conventions are a good way in. Of course they are. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so hang on. Let me take a step back. In my experience, okay. they were. I mean, when I first encountered that bookstore in 1984, late 84, uh, the 1985 Worldcon was on its way, and people were already saying, are you going to go to the 85 Worldcon? I'm going, what's a convention? I've never been to. No, I'm not going to Melbourne to go to the 1985 Worldcon, and I didn't. But um, I did go to the what was then the West Australian uh, convention, SwanCon. Uh-huh. And that was my first ever convention in Easter of 1985. And I met at SWATCON 11. It's now like 50-something or whatever. But I, I went and I met more people who had similar uh, um, interests. I went to panels for the first time. I don't think I was on any, but I actually went and attended them. Uh-huh. Um, and also because of WorldCon, it meant that a little bit later that year, writers were actually traveling around. David Brin came to Perth and gave some talks. Uh, and McCaffrey came to, to, came to Perth. All this sort of thing. Which was extraordinary in Perth in 1985, I can, I can assure you. And then sort of post Warcon, there was a thirst for other conventions. So, so someone put on a, a, a nanocon in a church hall for a weekend. Oh. And there was two streams of programming for the weekend and all this sort of thing. And so it went, you know. And what it meant was though, that's doing a pro- some pro- some programming at a nanocon gave you experience. Do some programming at a swancon, which when that when the national convention came around, you had experience to do that. So when I finally went to a national convention, many years later, I mean I think one came to Perth first. So I went to that, and then you know outside I had experience to sit on panels and stuff. Well, it's interesting because I had a, a I guess a different experience because of. Uh, having started out uh, in academia, because there were academic cons. There were, uh, at, at one point, there were two places you could go to, um, mostly in the United States, because I don't think there was much elsewhere. There was the Science Fiction Research Association, which has been around since the 60s, really, um, or the early 70s in its present form. And a sort of science fiction uh, track at the Modern Language Association, which is a very prestigious and uh, depressing convention because it's largely a historically has been a job market for people with PhDs. Uh, but I went to both of those and I um, got at some point persuaded, this is before even Charles started dragging me to get things, I got persuaded by all just others to go to a local regional con um, called WindyCon and he said you should talk about the things you talk about at these the research convention. Now, the academic conventions back then, because the writers, uh, many writers were flattered. They wanted academic attention. So there would be a, a Science Fiction Research Association convention, which would have Brian Aldous and, 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 and Joe Haldeman and uh, any number of other writers attending. Um, and I, so I got to know some writers that way, but I'd never been to a fan convention. Um, and this is a story, actually, which I told on this panel in, in, in Archipelago, which I was telling this, and I'm telling it now, it's an absolutely honest and true story. I didn't know it was going to be a joke until people, including George and Paris, started laughing at me. (laughs) But by going to academic conventions as a young assistant professor, you learn to dress as a young assistant professor. I had my Harris Tweed jacket, my Liberty of London tie, and I was going to be on a panel, so I figured, okay, going 
WindyCon is going to be just like going to the academic convention. Of course, I was the only one with a Harris tweed jacket and a tie at the entire convention and thought, I've made a mistake here, or I've been misled by AJ. <laughs> uh, and then 20 minutes I had been into this suburban hotel, which some of our listeners may know because it was actually the site of a world fantasy or convention or two many years ago. About 20 minutes into it, somebody comes up to me and says, which doctor are you? And I thought, <laughs> it took me a beat, and I thought, oh, okay, now I can get away with this. I just don't know which doctor I'm supposed to be, but all, but as long as I think it's a costume, I'm safe. And at that point, I felt <laughs> And this was before... This was before David Tennant. This is a long time ago. <laughs> That's a nice story, Gary. It's a true story, and it's something that it, it sounds like I made it up. But, <laughs> but, but by and large, the sense of... Even the people who didn't think I was doing some Doctor Who costume thought I was... There had to be some reason that I was dressed weirdly. Yeah. And the sense of having walked into a place and realizing you're out of place and then realizing, no, you're not out of place because being out of place is being part of the tribe was a very comforting feeling. I can see how it would be. Let me ask you this question. Uh, I think it's a, a, you know, a relevant one. Last week we talked about how fandom can be exclusionary and how fandoms yes. can be exclusionary. And we just, just were talking about how we both got involved. You know, you through an academic background, me through reading and stumbling onto a bookstore and then into a convention or whatever else. Why on earth would you want to be part of fandom, Gary? What, what's the upside? What, what, what's, what's, what would you sell to people as being the thing that makes it worthwhile? And I think it is worthwhile, so, I'm, you know. Well, I think it's very much worthwhile, and I, I, I would not discourage anybody from going to a convention the first time. I've talked to too many people who had bad first experiences at conventions, uh, and I think that there is an issue uh, with that. There was uh, a woman, for example, uh, th th I'm, I'm just thinking of examples that come to mind. This actually was Wiscon, which is arguably the most welcoming convention uh, for a variety of different kinds of people. And this was a uh, very much uh, intellectually oriented Marxist feminist from Italy who who had a terrible time. She didn't find anything in common with any of the people there. And I thought that was really odd. So the question of how do you get into this convention, how do you get into this world, um, is one that does fascinate me. Because I've, uh, you and I may have been lucky. We may have met friends and allies early on. Uh, I can recall stories, as I suspect you can, of, of chatting with somebody in a bar or in the back of a, a, a room or a a panel was going on, and then later finding out this is some writer you'd admired since you were a child. Um, so the, the reason for doing it is that there is, within that space of a convention, a much higher proportion of people that you have a lot in common with than in the real world. In other words, this, this Marxist feminist who felt that she mm. was out of place at, um, at Wisconsin, of all places, simply hadn't been talking to the right people. So how do you find you know, your people at these places. I don't and know. I think that's a problem. I, I, I don't know, because I have to tell you that I absolutely um, identify with the idea that you could go to a convention and end up 
alone, miserable, and feeling like you have a terrible mm-hmm. time, and you knew nobody. And in fact, I would go, go as far as to say, typically, I would I would encounter an experience like that. Even now, at just about every major convention I go to, there would be a period of time when that would happen. Um, for you, you mean? I mean yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I, I've, I can think of several times when I've absolutely had absolutely dreadful times. I mean, there was a one world con where I seriously thought, well, what am I even? I mean, why am I here? Why why would I go? This was an insane thing to have done. And other times when it's great and feels like the time of your life. Um, the hard thing to get your head around is that the convention doesn't turn around you. Everybody's there meeting their friends. And sometimes you just don't get much social traction in, in the groups. It's just how it is. I think that's true. And I think that for a first-time convention goer or somebody who's been a passionate reader for a while and has finally heard about this convention thing, the chances are that... Um, the first convention, you'll be either going out to lunch and dinner on your own or finding a group of other people who haven't been invited anywhere for, for lunch and dinner. Um, and uh, that, that kind of behavior, I mean, there are all kinds of guides out there online about how you meet people at conventions, about how you get involved in conversations in the bar or something without, you know, intruding uh, excessively. Um, and I, I, I think that Going through that, uh, what happened to me was there were a few people I met at a few of these academic conventions who became good friends. As a matter of fact, mm. the first one, probably the first friend I had in what we now consider fandom, was my fellow reviewer Russell Letson. Yeah, uh, uh, known each other forever, and I remember a few conventions where Russell and I were cynically making my, you know, doing the kinds of things that snarky, wise, cracking young people do, standing at the back of panel discussions, yeah. making snark remarks about them, and, and sort of bonded over that, and we, you gradually find a few other people like that. Uh, but, but, uh, but there's a certain point at which you cross a line in which you find yourself getting invited to panels and so forth and so sure. on. How tr- that happens, how that involves, involves professional activity, I'm sure. The truth of it is that the bigger the convention, the more it is true that if you don't show up with your own tribe, you will be lonely and out of it at some point. Inevitably, inevitably. Yeah. Now, that's unfortunate, and it's just, it's slightly avoidable and manageable. But what I would say about it is, fandom oversells itself to its own detriment at times. Oh, it's not all I... welcoming and all loving and all encompassing all the time. You know, it, there's some really great people, but there's also people who see each other once every year or two or three. And when that happens, the only people they want to talk to are the people they only see every one year or two or three. And they'll be quite, oh, it's nice to meet you, but I want to talk to my friend who I haven't seen in four years. And that's pretty common. The thing that's perhaps most shocking to you or I is that for a very large number of people who attend these events, they don't focus on mealtimes, Gary. Um, Okay, that probably is true, but the reason that you and I have talked about this is we're always talking about juggling meal plans at conventions, which I try not to over-plan myself. But what do you mean that people don't organize them all the time? The experience of conventions that I learned from Charles Brown, right? His version of it was basically everything was tent-poled around breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm -hmm. Who you were going out for for that, that night for dinner, because it wouldn't be... I mean. 
you wouldn't go out for, for an hour for dinner or 45 minutes. You're going out for a three hour dinner and a two oh, hour, and a two hour lunch and possibly an hour and a half or two hour long breakfast or a three hour long breakfast with possibly some little meeting in between or two. And then you'd go to a panel on the side. But I remember very clearly going to conventions where lunch was 30, a 30 minute nuisance on your way to panels and time in the dealer's room and meeting people and all this kind of thing. It's just that our version of convention going is breakfasts and lunches and dinners. It's true, and I've had the experience uh, more than once uh, at ICFA in Florida of meeting a group for breakfast and staying in the restaurant until dinner time almost. Yeah. I mean, basically, now the second group of people comes in for breakfast, and by the time you're ready to go out, there's... a group of people coming in for an early lunch, and you spend the whole day doing that. Um, but again, the the more you do that, the more you feel like, okay, I'm part of an in-group, and somebody is being excluded by this. Um, but I guess the issue I want... Yeah. Well, the, the issue that Renee raised, which is, is still in my mind, uh, is the idea of a kind of entrance exam for being a fan. Yeah, that you know you you should be at, you shouldn't be at this convention if you haven't read X Y and Z or seen X Y and Z. And limit, uh, the only extent to which I have felt this to some extent, and I, I really haven't. It's not bothered me in any particular way. Is that I've not seen all of Doctor Who. I'm sorry, I've seen a fair amount of Doctor Who. I can't list all the Doctors. I admire it as much as probably not as much as anybody, but I admire it a good deal. And so, yeah, I can't keep up with Doctor Who fandom at all. Uh, but by and large, I haven't run into people who say, well, you can't talk to me, you can't have a conversation with me, and you can't go out to dinner with me unless you can recite all the doctors in order and their assistants and, and, and who the writers and producers were on every show. I've never encountered that. I've, uh, I, I've had, you know, sort of, I think there are times when you can sit there and it appears other people are having a better time and they appear to be so, a socially coherent unit that you're not part of and there's, there's no obvious way to break into that social unit. And so you sit there kind of going, well, I feel excluded, even though there's no conscious exclusion going on, I don't believe. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, the, 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 the application test, which even to some degree Renee herself, I think, indicated she didn't experience that much. Mm-hmm. Though I do know other people who have. Um, not really. I don't think I ever heard anybody saying, "Oh, what you you haven't read Dahlgren?" Oh, I can't talk to. You. Or, or at least I think less of you because you haven't Dahlgren. It would never be a unless a very particular situation. You know, there wouldn't be a thing we'd say. Well, if you haven't read June, you can't. You know, I mean, you can't go on a panel about the no. ev- the evolution of June uh, as, as a media franchise if you've never read June or if you've never seen the June movie or something. But other than that, no, I've never counted. I've certainly had people sort of say, oh, I would have thought you'd have read Moton God's Eye. Um, or here's an example, a real-life example from uh, from ReaderCon, which is one of my favorite conventions uh, because it, it does focus very heavily on reading. But there's a small group of people at ReaderCon who I will not name, but they know who they are, that have memorized the entire works of Gene Wolfe. I mean, they've memorized them. They know every character and every, they know everything that happens, uh, in the entire 12 volumes of, uh, the Book of the New Sun and the Long Sun and the Short Sun. And occasionally I get in, co- in a conversation with, them. and these, these books, okay, confession, I've not read all 12 of those novels. Um, but 
you find yourself in a confession, in a conversation with those people, and the only tactful way to deal with it is to listen politely and not try to inject one or two insights you might have into uh, books that they know far better than you do. Or at least they're confident they do. Well, uh, well no, they, they really do. I mean, uh, there are readers... This, this is what I think confuses people when they go to conventions. There are sub-sub uh, sets of, of readerships that are astonishingly knowledgeable with a very narrow area. If you find yourself in a room full of Lovecraft fans, it, you, you will find yourself outpaced very quickly. Oh, yeah. You find yourself in a room full of fans. You find yourself in a room full of Philip K. Dick fans. There are people who are so focused on on a few works that you're never going to get into that subject. No, but that, that's okay. Everybody has their own preferences and expertises. I mean, your point, correctly, is that though you don't want to be judged on it and found wanting. You exactly. Know, you know, I, I, I enjoy the work of Gene Wolfe. I have read a variety of his work. I've not read anything like all of his work. I could probably read Gene Wolfe for another 20 years after he finally dies and catch mm-hmm. up then kind of thing. And you're right. There are people who have read, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, what do they call themselves, Lupians or something, and that they've read everything. And you're going, well, good for you. As long and, as you don't sit there going, well, and I think less of you as a human. And just as, well, just as a footnote to that, I've been in at least one conversation with these people, with Gene, in which they completely outpaced him, too. He had no idea what he'd said in these novels 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, but they had Is that true, or is it really true that he's sitting there going, it doesn't behoove me to, to act as though I remember every detail? Um, I don't really know. Uh, because Gene is an exceptional case since he has an astonishingly steel trap kind of memory. Uh, but I do remember being at a reading once of Doris Lessing's uh, when one person in the audience, and there's always somebody in a panel discussion, but this will be a lecture and audience response. There's always somebody who says, I don't really have a question, but I want to tell you about how much this story meant to me when I was a kid, and it completely changed. You mentioned the title of the story uh, by Doris Lessing, and and, and explained how it completely changed his attitudes toward gender. It made him... He, 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 seven or eight minutes of the question, which was not a question. Yeah. After which Doris said, I'm really... I, I'm very appreciative that you like the story. I don't remember the story you're talking about, but I'm sure I must have written it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, that's one step up in what I was expecting, which was I didn't actually read it. I didn't actually write it. Oh, okay, well, that, that, that could happen, too, as well. <laughs> but the thing is, I, that's the other thing is, I, I guess the etiquette, and I, we're talking about things we don't really know about. There are people who are much more knowledgeable than we are, and Cheryl is among them. The etiquette of approaching a writer that you admire at a convention, which is your first convention, how do you do that? I have no idea. I was always terrible at it. You know, and you, know, you, you, you talked, I mean, even now, even now, I'm terrible at it. And, you know, you talked, you said, you know, sort of, have you ever found yourself deeply engrossed in conversation with a writer or with a person then found, found there a writer that you loved, whose work you loved? Going, no, never. That's never happened to me ever. Um, I've always been aware of who writers were. I came up having poured through the pages of Locus, so I knew what everybody looked like pretty much. Yeah. So when I went to a convention, I'd be going, oh, that's so-and-so over there, and be quite aware of it. And then that would make me somewhat awkward with them, frankly. So there are people who have actually, in fact, there are any number of people who have been guests at conventions in West Australia that I've never met. Mm-hmm. You know? So. I've, by and large, never, I mean, 
I just, if I have not met somebody or been introduced to somebody. But what can happen, uh, the way I met Gregory Bindred, in fact, was that I was at a, it was an academic conference and there were some really pretentious papers going on and I was standing at the back of the room with a guy who I'd never seen before. Um, and this is, pro this is before I was even writing for Locus. And we were making snarky remarks about the pretentiousness of the presentation, and, and, and at the end of which we said, you want to go get a drink, and he introduced himself. So that's a way of meeting somebody without sure. knowing you're meeting him. <laughs> I would certainly would not have gone up and said, oh, my God, you're Gregory Bunker. Um, but, but I think that there are situations, and this is one of the reasons to go to those awful room parties that, that large conventions have, overstuffed, overcrowded, and that sort of thing, because you might very well find yourself having a conversation with somebody that you admire and uh, yeah. and, and who finds themselves interested in talking oh, to you. I've had some of the best conversations of my of my life at conventions that were totally unexpected. I had a fabulous exactly. conversation with Sean Stewart in a stinking hot tour party in Los Angeles in 2006, which was fascinating. I had a wonderful mm -hmm. conversation out of the blue, actually, completely out of the blue, with Rick Berry in 2005 in Boston. And Rick Berry is one of the most fearsomely intelligent people I've ever met, I think, and one of the most interesting, who was yeah. fabulous company. Um, and I say that not to drop names, but well, just like, that just stands out, which isn't to say that everybody else is dull and not good company, but they stand out off the top of my head right now. Uh, no, I, I, th I think the same thing has happened to me occasionally where you find yourself just, you know, went into an... I mean, one time I was... I don't think he'd mind my recounting this, but we spent a half day with Ted Chang because uh, because of a, what he considered to be a spoiler in a review I'd written which covered one of his stories. And I kept saying it's not a spoiler. Uh, and he kept saying it. Well, but, but the point is we got more and more into that issue of what a spoiler was. The spoiler, by the way, was the second law of thermodynamics. And I kept saying, Ted, people know that. I mean, you didn't invent it. It's not a spoiler. <laughs> but... Uh, but by and large, uh, it, it, it was a reveal in the story. Yeah. And so you find yourself in conversations like that, and you find yourself, uh, you know, in, in a bar or a party or something. And sometimes, this is—I I think this is the thing to, to, to sort of keep in mind. Sometimes the person you find yourself really in having a great conversation with, having rapport with, is another fan, is somebody who is maybe another first-time convention goer. Or it might be a writer that you've admired since you were a kid. Or it might be somebody that you've been sicked on. The only time I met R.A. Lamp, there are two examples, two times mm -hmm. I can remember at conventions, where I was sort of thrown up as a sacrificial goat to oh, somebody. But not because they were bad, um, but because nobody knew how to deal with them. One was a popular culture association convention in the United States where you're more or less countryman, but not quite. A. Bertram Chandler had shown up. The only <laughs> science fiction writer at a convention that had nothing else to do with science fiction. Uh, and I don't know... And, and Bertram Chandler had an odd combination of, I gather, West Midlands and Australian accents. <laughs> I've never met Chandler, so... Okay, well, he had a very... And, and in addition to which, he had some kind of a... What later was described to me as a nautical accent because okay. he described him as, he was a I, seaman yeah he was a seaman or a shipmaster shipmaster yeah. but it means shipmaster yeah um, and i was asked to go talk to him because 
he was speaking in sentences which nobody could understand and somebody literally said to me i think this guy is talking about science fiction will you talk to him <laughs> and so, how was so that was, it was fine he was delightful he was he was much more interested in talking about his seamanship than about his science fiction um, yeah and it was one of the one of the other things that you uh that I learned early on is if you, if you if you meet somebody that you are interested in, and I can't say I was a big Bertram Chandler fan, but I certainly had read him since I was a kid, and he wants to talk about something that you consider to be a little bit odd, go with it. Um, yeah. You know, he, the, he, he, well, the one thing I found was that almost no writer I've ever met wants to talk about their own work. Exactly. And he was not the slightest yeah. bit interested in no. it. But if you were listening to his... Stale tales of seamanship. He was absolutely uh, delighted to be able to deal, uh, to deal and, uh, with that. And of course, you would know that his son-in-law is going to be at the Royal Fantasy Convention. I did not know that. His son-in-law is going to be at the Royal Fantasy. He's in fact receiving his lifetime achievement award there. Who's the son-in-law? Bertram Ramsey Campbell. Campbell. Ramsey Campbell. Ramsey Campbell is Bertram Chandler's son-in-law. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> hmm. Welcome to the world. And who was, who, who was the other one? Was this R.A. Lafferty? The other one was R.A. Lafferty. Uh, and it was at a um, very early world, com- by very early. Uh, I, guess, I can say very early because I can remember things that other people can't remember now. Uh, sometime probably in, this, in the 80s, 70s maybe, uh, there have been three Chai Cons that I've been to. So this was the first of those. And because I was on the local committee, I got into the SF. W.A. Suite, and at some point, somebody who I'd met, some writer, can't remember, it may have been Joe Haldeman, said, you should go talk to Ray Lafferty sitting over there on the couch. And and he was. He was sitting alone on the couch, no one paying attention to him. I was, I think everybody, when they first read Lafferty's stories, are just stunned. And I thought, this is, this is a guy who had imagination like nobody else I've ever met. So I really want to talk to him. And I, I sat down next to him on the couch, and he, I said, hello, we talked for five minutes, and he lost consciousness and literally slid off the couch onto the floor. <laughs> um, I haven't quite had that experience point, at a convention. Somebody, some experienced writer, and I can't tell you who it was, so I won't try to guess the name, said, oh, that's just Ray. Let's pick him up and prop him up again. <laughs> um, I later found out that he was famous for, he was famous for being so completely drunk at every convention that you'd be in the middle of a conversation with him and he would just fall asleep. Oh, well. And, and twice in the next night I went up there and somebody said, oh, Ray's over there <laughs> waiting for you. To this day, I don't know if Ray Lafferty even saw me or knew I was there, <laughs> but I can claim we had two conversations. Well, that's nice. Actually, I found something out just as, as, a, as a tangential comment. I, I found a, a piece of folk wisdom that I'd always known to be true wasn't true the other day. Because I'd always really? been told that the reason that Lafferty stopped writing was because he was writing faster than the market could buy it, could buy, and he couldn't sell his stuff anymore. Hmm. And what's the real? Well, I just read this, uh, letter exchange between Lafferty and Alan Dean Foster. Where Alan Dean Foster was editing an anthology and was going to be printing a story of Ray's in it. And in the, the exchange, Ray basically says the reason he stopped writing was because, first of all, because of, um, rheumatoid arthritis, making it very painful and difficult. And also, he thought his later work wasn't very good. Really? Yeah. Hmm. He'd kind of lost it. 
That's fascinating. I wonder how many writers have given up writing because of a sense that they couldn't do it well anymore. I don't know. I mean, it, it's a very tricky thing and, and, and not something you're necessarily entirely aware of yourself. And then, you know, you always hope I'd get, well, I would assume you'd always hope that you're one of those exceptions because we can all point to two or three or four or five writers out there who are in their 70s and 80s who are vital and productive and quite incredible. I mean, Gene Wolfe, who we mentioned earlier. Um, uh, Kate Wilhelm. Um, Sherry Taylor. Other people. Mm-hmm. Le Guin. Um, who've written well into later old age with, with little or no impairment to, to the wonder of what they can do. And then there are others who, where the work seems to drift and you're less sure. And I guess he felt that's partly what it was for him as well, that, that the work just wasn't quite there the way it had been. And I know there is a school of thought that he was never quite the same writer when Damon Knight wasn't editing him. Um, there, 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 that's certainly been something that's been said. I mean, there's uh, a similar story that, uh, that uh, James Tiptree Jr., once she was revealed to be James Tiptree Jr., could never quite get that edge back. She could never quite, you know, write yeah. the way she did. Nobody knew she I've heard that. I'm not, you know, not sure it's 100% fair, but I've heard it. <laughs> the issue is addressed in Julie Phillips' wonderful mm. biography, uh, but but there's 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 a kind of there's been a cliche in, among literary historians, not just in terms of science fiction and fantasy, but in terms of general literature, that writers, as they reach what they perceive to be older years, uh, turn to fable-like writing. Uh, Shakespeare begins writing things like uh, you know, the, the, the Tempest or A Winter's Tale at the end of his career. Uh, Faulkner writes novels like a fable. Um, Hemingway gets older and he writes The Old Man in the Sea. So there's the idea that uh, that the writing becomes more condensed and more um, abstract in some way. Um, and to some extent you could make an argument that, that something like that is happening with if he's writing shorter standalone novels, although I gather A Borrowed Man is going to have a sequel. But the gigantic 12-volume architectures uh, probably aren't going to happen. The novels aren't any worse. They aren't any weaker. Yeah. Um, but they're not, they're not as grand in scope. Uh, well, and Le Guin, yeah. it's the same thing. She's writing more uh, uh, condensed, uh, but excellent books like Lavinia late in her life. Well, I mean, you say that, but also, I mean, she's she said basically that she doesn't feel she has the the stamina to write novel length work anymore. That we probably won't, that we won't see another novel from her, and most you know, likely, yeah. even though there has been the the occasional short story. I think she had two short stories out last year, In, mm-hmm. including Gary, bafflingly, as I've complained elsewhere, an Earthsea story that nobody talked about. What's that? Uh, she released Daughter of Odrun, I think it's called as a Kindle single in about November of last year. And it's an original Earthsea story, and not didn't see any discussion of it whatsoever. I didn't even know it existed. Nope, nor did I until about two or three months ago. I briefly flirted with the idea of saying that if it was the kind of story that I'd want to put in my year's best, that I would just consider it anyway for next year's, because I was completely unaware of it. But that's not really playing fair with the rules of the book. But I was quite taken aback, so... Well, I mean that, but but the point is, there's nothing wrong with somebody turning to short or even no, more no. gnomic form. Um, there's nothing uh, wrong with doing but, it, whatever you want when you're writing, as long as it's yeah, what but you're doing. Pe- but yeah, there are writers, and I don't want to name them, but you you and I could probably name them, and our listeners could probably name them, who 
late in careers start returning to the things they know how to do well and just do more of them. So sure. the writing is competent, nothing wrong with it, but it's not extending their careers in any meaningful yes. way. But the problem with that, that train of thought, Gary, is that leads to one of the more dangerous you know, drinking games you can have at a convention bar. They should have stopped after dot, dot, dot. Um, the, the, that's an interesting readerly approach to things because a couple of the writers I know, uh, a couple of the writers I'm referring to are people I know reasonably well. And, and when you know professional writers, you realize, okay, maybe from a reader's point of view or from a critic's point of view, they haven't moved beyond that. But from a human being's point of view, they are making a living writing. Of course. They, their income from turning yeah, in books every absolutely. year. Absolutely. And they're satisfying some readers or the books wouldn't be selling. So, Yeah, exactly. So, anyway, we have stumbled along to just about the hour mark, Gary, believe it or not. That's a stop. I know. We didn't actually say something. We'll have to see if we actually put this episode out. I think we will. Um, because we just blathered for an hour. It was a true ramble. <laughs> That's it's a, this is all stuff that may come back to haunt me, especially because I'm going to Worldcon, and it may come back to haunt both of us. It turns out we said things that are complete nonsense. Uh, I do want to thank Renee for having raised an issue that is sticking in my mind even in the second podcast in a row, because I do think access to the community is uh, is an issue. It's, a, it's, a, it's yeah, an issue. I, for I agree. It's, it's an issue for people who perceive themselves to be, you know, even potentially excluded. Yeah, and we will talk around it, I'm sure, in future. I mean, uh, we had talked about talking to, to a few people about be, you know, being a woman writing science fiction today. I think that's a conversation to continue. Yeah. I noticed that Christine Crafton Rush is doing a lot of work in this area right now and is preparing she's, an anthology for Bain, so all kinds of stuff's happening. That'll be very interesting to see, and maybe we should uh, have future podcasts on similar themes. Yes, but until then... We'll wind up, and I will talk to you probably not long after the Hugo ceremony next week. If not before. If not before. Until then, Gary, we remain now, as always, the Cruise Street Podcast.